Well, good morning, Randolph Street family. Thank you for being here on the Lord's Day. For those of you in this room, we welcome you. For those of you continuing to join us online, we welcome you likewise. We try to remind this, uh, you of this each and every week. God has called you to this moment. By his spirit, he has brought you into this most sacred and holy place to join together as God's people and lift up our voices in worship and praise to our God. So I, we have prayed for you today that the Lord has pre prepped your heart, worked in you, bringing you to this moment to engage with God's people and to give God glory and to him glory alone. Amen? All right, a few announcements. If you'll grab your bulletins just quickly, a few things to walk through. Um, a couple of them are in your bulletin, a few of them are not. I know a number of our families are still battling COVID. I think COVID has spread pretty much through most of our church family, and uh, there's a few lingering folks out there who have not yet joined the party, uh, but uh, we're glad that the effects have been minimal to this point on most of our folks. Uh, we do have a few families now battling COVID, so I'd appreciate you praying for them. Uh, Michael and Rachel Ashworth, uh, welcomed little Elias James into the world the other night. Uh, so we are deeply grateful for that little gift of God. He is a beautiful young man, and uh, we rejoice with Michael and Rachel over what the Lord has given them. And, and she's going to get mad at me for this, Bertie Baber has joined us again. So welcome back, Bertie. Yeah, I'm going to pay the price for doing that later, but I'll, I'll accept that. All right, a few announcements in your bulletin, just a couple of things to point you too. If you have not joined our training hour classes, last Sunday was the first week of those classes. Please uh, get involved with that. We have a few adult classes here in the auditorium. We have a guys class, a gals class meeting discussing the book Disciplines of Grace, which was just a fundamental book for me, thinking through uh, God's work in me as a Christian. Would encourage you to be a part of that. Our teen and college class is rolling. So thankful. Today we discussed the Trinity, the Trinitarian nature of God. Uh, so all of those guys, they all stayed awake and they listened so well. Uh, but I've enjoyed the first couple of weeks of that class. So if you're not involved yet, get involved in those classes. The new Randolph Street app is out. Please download that. Uh, you're going to find helpful information, including a full directory there. If you're having problems with the apps, with the app, please let us know. You can contact any of our office staff. Uh, we'll point you to the right people and, and uh, get you going in the right direction, I trust. And then lastly, the new song that we, we introduced here last Sunday. The music was on the back table. Th these last two songs we've introduced, Whatever My God Ordains, and this one, uh, Afflicted Saint to Christ Draw Near. I would really encourage you to grab that music and to put these words to memory, uh, at least uh, familiarize yourself with them as they are so helpful in light of just life and walking through difficulties and struggles. Okay, as we do every Lord's Day, let us take a moment and prepare our hearts before our God as we come into his presence together as a church, it is proper and right as we enter into this time to confess our sins to the Lord. Uh, we want to enter into these moments with pure hands or pure hearts and clean hands as the scriptures speak. And we want to honor our God. So let's take a moment. As you do, let this truth rest on your heart. Acts chapter 4 verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Your hope is Christ and Christ alone this morning. Let's quiet our hearts before the Lord and ask him to prepare us for this time.
Please stand if you would and let us together hear the word of God call us to worship this morning from Psalm chapter 3. O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing, O God, be upon your people. Amen. and truths of God's character in which we anchor our souls. The catechisms that we do here are designed to help us know our God and anchor our soul in his character. Question 11. What are the decrees of God? 
The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. How does God execute his decrees? God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. Our Father, as we stand before you today seeking to worship you in spirit and in truth, we recognize the importance that we worship you in accord with who you are. Father, it is impossible for us to fully know you for you are God and God alone. Yet, Lord, you have revealed yourself to us in so many ways through the scriptures, through creation. And, Father, that which we do know, we want to honor, we want to exalt you, we want to bring glory to your holy name. Father, as we consider your sovereignty over your creation, over your creatures, Lord, help us to find comfort in that. Help us to find purpose in that. Help us to find a sweet peace as we acknowledge your providence in our lives. Lord, as your people in a broken world, we walk through many, many, many dark days and hard times. And yet we know that you are God even in those moments. Your decrees have been set forth. And so, Lord, help us to trust in you. Might we rest in you. Might we recognize not only have you saved us, but, Lord, you will keep us by the power of your grace. And so, Lord, we, we lean upon you this day. I pray, Lord, that as we continue to worship through song, worship through the word, worship through the listening of the scriptures, listening to how your word goes forth to the nations, that our hearts may rise up and give you glory. Amen. Please stand and sing. Covenant is blood support. 
us now hear from God's holy word. A reading from the Gospel of Luke. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. A reading from the first epistle to the Hebrews. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest is also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter the rest, that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, in discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but are all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Please stand. Dark, so dark was the
Well, we are thrilled to have Marcy Hayden with us uh, from 20 Schemes Ministries. It was a few years ago as we as a church here, we were launching Hope for Appalachia and we were trying to figure out just ministry in our context here on the west side of Charleston, an area that's uh, obviously dealing with uh, significant addiction issues and poverty issues throughout all of central Appalachia. It was a few years ago I began to uh, become familiar with 20 Schemes, which is a ministry in Scotland among the, the poorest of, uh, of those within Scotland, church planning ministry, revitalization. And I began to learn uh, a lot of helpful thoughts in our context as they ministered uh, in Scotland. This morning, Marcy is with us, and she's going to give us an update on 20 Schemes. Tell us a little bit about 20 Schemes, and then we're going to pray for 20 Schemes this morning. Thanks for having me, but um, as soon as we walked in, my husband Frankie and I, we could tell that this church was mission-minded. Um, I saw a bulletin board with several families and missionaries, and um, then the map outside, and even inside you've got these reminders constantly throughout the worship that you you are thinking and praying for people in other countries. Well, um, and now you're going to send your own. Julia is going to Scotland this summer so with 20 schemes, so that's so exciting. But people don't always think about Scotland and missions because if you know anything about Scotland's religious history you know that's the birthplace of the reformers and John Knox is from Scotland and it's just used to be such a spiritually rich country well that that's gone there's um, churches are dying and they have uh, beautiful church buildings have become art galleries and restaurants and bars and they're closing everywhere so what we do is we want to take the gospel into the poorest areas of Scotland this is, uh, you probably know this from this neighborhood. My daughter told me a little bit about this neighborhood, but it's very, um, these schemes are insular communities. You never have to leave the scheme. Every, everything's right there. So if there's not a gospel church there, you're not going to go anywhere. And it, there are some schemes where they've grown up, people have grown up generation, and they have never known an, a believer in Christ. So we are desperate to get people into those schemes and, and share the light of the gospel. So, uh, Hopefully, Julia is going to be having a wonderful experience this summer. It's such a, um, a great training ground for sharing with people who don't know anything about Christ. And we are in it for the long game. We want to send people who are willing to stay, live in the community, get to know the people, and just um, evangelize and, and train up the next generation of believers. When you use the term scheme, translate that to our community here what is a scheme so the, the closest thing that Mez McConnell's has he's our founder one of our founders he said it's it's the closest thing he's seen in the U.S. is a um, Indian reservation because that is a community all in its own there's everything they need is there it's generational there's poverty addiction it's just uh, and when people leave it's seen as um, kind of abandoning the tribe you know hmm. just leaving your, your, it's not a good thing to leave, that people don't want you to, so it's just an, a, an area that is um, totally self-sustaining, self, um, if, if they could live there and never leave the scheme. I've seen others speak of it like our projects, but, yeah. but, but different, yeah. but like our projects in that they do find high rates of poverty, yes. high rates of addiction. Yeah. Um, I, I could make the assumption, because we've experienced that a little bit here, ministry in the schemes for your church planters, church revitalizers, very difficult ministry. It is, and what 20 Schemes does is one thing that has been very helpful is, um, you know, 
do send people out, but we've created a network of pastors because when you are in a scheme, you really feel isolated. You feel that, that you, you may be the only, those the plant, planting team we send in is maybe the only Christians there for, for months or years. Or So we create a network so that they can get together and kind of encourage each other, pray for each other. So it's, uh, you know, we try to support our plants that way. And the 20 in 20 schemes means what? It just means when they started it, they said, you know what, we're going to, our goal is going to be in 10 years, we want to plant 20 churches. We want to start 20 churches that plant churches. So right now we are, um, we've got about eight plants, and so we're not exactly on goal, but we're okay with that because we are in it in this for the long game. Amen. But we have, if we had the people, we could have many, many more. We just need um, we need people to go into these schemes and, and live there and, and be church planners, gospel workers, and ministry interns. Amen. There's two reasons I love, or there's many reasons I love 20 schemes. One, they're ministering to the homeland for you sanctified folks here this morning. Uh, there's a few of us in this room. Uh, but two, uh, they believe the answer to the struggles and challenges of these schemes uh, is primarily the gospel of Christ in and through the local church. And that's what we love about 20 Schemes. That's what we identify with as we hear the ministry uh, that you guys are engaged in there. How, how can our folks, where can they go to find out more information about 20 Schemes? 20schemes.com is a website. We also have a YouTube channel. with. Um, it's, we have a music branch that people who just come to Christ write poems, and our music director, Saul, puts these to music. So that's been really good for people who don't know. You know, a lot of the, our Christian songs that we sing have language that they're not familiar with. And before they sing about the blood of Christ, we want them to, ex you know, experience what that means. And we also have a, um, uh, we have a lot of podcasts on that YouTube channel with our pastors and other workers. 20 Schemes has produced uh, a lot of good literature for us as a church. Um, I I've been exposed to Mez's, Mez McConnell's teaching in the past. And Mez is, he's just a real guy. Uh, he loves people. He steps into the hardest of lives, and he is all about the gospel. Your pastor is? Matthew Spanner Davison. Yeah. He's in Bardstown. So we, uh, we're in Bardstown, Kentucky. We're the sending agency. We get, but, but Matthew's from Scotland. So he came to Louisville to go to Southern Seminary. His idea was to go back and plant a church, but God called him to plant in Bardstown. But he and Mez met, and um, actually through Mark Dever, I think Connie Dever wrote one of the song you all sang yeah. today. But, uh, but we act as a sending agency. We recruit get church partners and funding and we send it to Scotland and they send it out from there. Amen. Well, we want to pray for 20 schemes today. Give us a few items that we can pray for even after our gathering today for, for your ministry. Well, like you said, it's hard work and our uh, workers get discouraged um, when you invest in somebody's life and you spend months um, and they come, you think they've come to faith and they're doing so well and then they walk away and it's just, um, it's devastating and this happens frequently. They also experience death of people who've been coming to church and hearing the gospel, and then they die of a drug, of drug overdose. So there's just a lot of discouragement. So please pray for our endurance and stamina for our church planners and, our, and their teams. And also pray for the gospel just to spread in Scotland. It's a, it's a tough, tough area to witness in because it's, you know, it hasn't been fertile ground for a while, and they're, uh, they're, they just need the gospel. 
As you mentioned, my daughter will be joining you guys this summer. Tell Mez if he doesn't take care of them, her, I will be coming to visit him, okay? Please. Okay. Thank you. Join with me as we pray for 20 schemes together. Well, Father, your, your work in the church is happening all over the world, and that causes our hearts to rejoice here this morning. Even in places that many of us maybe don't think of often, like the poor schemes in neighborhoods of Scotland. And yet today, there are thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of men and women and children in those schemes who are battling addiction and poverty, hopelessness. So Lord, we pray for 20 schemes and the church plants and revitalization efforts that are taking place that you would multiply, sustain, strengthen, that the gospel might enter into these schemes through local, faithful, Christ-centered local churches, pointing the folks, those guys, gals, and children to the only hope in this life, which is Christ. So Lord, bless this ministry, bless Maz, Matthew, others involved in leadership like Marcy, whether they would have wisdom, that you would grant them all the resources needed, funding, pastors, church planters, everything they need to sustain this ministry and advance it into more than 20 schemes in the days and months and years to come. Thank you for Marcy, her faithful ministry stateside with uh, with Matthew and Bardstown, Lord, I pray that, again, you would just grant them unusual wisdom in these days as they continue to move this ministry forward. Lord, we pray your richest of blessings up on uh, this church planting, church revitalization ministry you have called into existence. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Marcy will be around after the gathering. If you would like to ask questions, talk with her, please make sure you do that. Thank you, Marcy.
Sean and Amelia for ministering to us this morning. If you'll take your copy of God's Holy Word and open with me this morning to Acts, Acts chapter 8, as we continue this series through this history of the church, the history of the advancement of the gospel. So appreciative of Pastor Tim last Sunday, his preaching through that last, well, not that last, the whole of chapter 7, the last portion of chapter 6, and such a, a helpful reminder, I trust, as you followed along and took time. I know you took time last Sunday afternoon to read Stephen's sermon. Uh, I know Tim might have mentioned that. I mentioned that. Uh, hopefully you took time to walk through that. Today, we're in chapter 8, and we're going to be moving through these first eight verses. So let's hear the reading of God's Word together. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. 
For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so that there was much joy in that city. I trust the Lord will bless his word this morning for his church. Well, last Sunday, I think we began to step into the realities of what Paul would later say in the book of Acts. And this has kind of been a little verse that's kind of pressed on us a number of times to this particular study, and now it's really going to press in as we continue through the book of Acts. That's when Paul would say, through many tribulations, we shall enter the kingdom of God. That's, that's how Paul viewed life. That's how Paul viewed the work of the church. That the church would persevere through suffering and persecution and difficulties, what Paul calls tribulations, this would be the very tenor and tone of the local church as we advance toward the kingdom of God. This was Paul's expectation, and what is now playing out in the narratives that are before us is this is the reality of the church. And not, not just the first century church. This is what Paul lays over us likewise. This is what the, the narrative of Acts lays over us likewise. Through many tribulations and trials and sufferings and persecutions, we shall together enter the kingdom of God. That's why we learn songs like we're learning here that Connie Dever and someone else wrote. Afflicted saint to Christ draw near. And your bulletin, there's that little phrase we put in there, because this, this is why we want you to remember this. So sing with joy, afflicted one. It sounds so contradictory, doesn't it? Sing with joy, afflicted one. The battle's fierce, but the victory's won. That's the kind of truth we want pressed into the hearts and minds of Randolph Street members, because we know what Paul said is true. Through many tribulations, we shall enter the kingdom of God. And that is clear. It is crystal clear in the text from last Sunday morning and the text that we're looking at today. Just a quick summary of the book of Acts to get us to this text. The gospel is advancing. Persecution is, is increasing. The church is growing as Christ builds his church. That's a, that's a quick one-sentence summary of the book of Acts to get us to this point. The gospel is advancing, persecution is increasing, the church is growing, all the while Christ is there and he's building his church. If you're taking notes, here's your outline this morning through these first eight verses of, the, of Acts 8. We're going to... We're going to first, we're going to get a little out of order here. We're going to finish Stephen's story with verse number two. Okay, last week, Pastor Tim took us through Stephen's story, right? And that he, he was introduced back in early Acts 6, and he's martyred at the end of Acts 7. But we're going to finish his story just very quickly, verse number two. Then we're going to step out of that, point two. We're going to look at Saul, who's, who's, who's the persecutor here, and the persecution that rises up in this particular part of the history of the church. Three, we're going to look at persecution, providence, and the mission of the church being advanced. We're going to see how persecution kind of serves providentially, back to our catechism reading this morning. 
We're going to see how persecution under the providential sovereign hand of God advances the gospel. Lastly, I'm going to do a quick summary statement um, just to kind of wrap all of this together in a way that I, that I hope is helpful to you as we come to the Lord's table. So let's finish Stephen's story here. Luke is not going to leave this hanging, okay, from last Sunday morning and the previous chapter of Acts 7. He's going to wrap up the story of Stephen in verse number 2. It's a very brief statement. He says, Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. I'm going to re-preach Tim's sermon, The Temptation of Every Pastor. Tim does it after me, I'll do it after him. It's just, you sit over there and your heart's stirred. Stephen's story is unique. It's, it's unique in a, in a variety of ways, but primarily Stephen now is the first martyr in the history of the church. There will be many more to follow in Stephen's footsteps, not, not only in Acts, but outside of Acts, into church history, through church history. And if we understand Revelation correctly, there are many more martyrs to come. I mean, that's kind of what's happening there in Revelation chapter 7, if I remember correctly. How many more, O oh Lord? So Stephen's the first. Last Sunday, when I came up to the pulpit afterwards, I brought forth, I think it was Irenaeus, an early church father, who said that the, the blood of the martyrs, the, that's the seed of the church. In other words, their, ball, their, their blood, it, 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 it's planted into the ground and it, and it brings forth fruit. And we are going to see that in this narrative today about Stephen and his death and, and the implications of his death. We learned last Sunday morning, Stephen was a faithful man. He was a bold man. He was one of the original seven that were called out to care for this issue that was affecting the local the, the church there in Jerusalem, the, the Hellenistic Jewish widows, these Greek-speaking Jewish widows who were being neglected in the daily distribution. Poverty had set in on the Jerusalem church. Stephen is one of those men they, they called to come forth and to, and to seek to resolve this issue. In chapter 7, we, we see Stephen. He stands up before the religious leaders after a confrontation. And he calls them to repentance. I mean, it's, it's a bold, courageous moment. Stephen stands before the, the, the Sanhedrin, if you will, and he, he calls them to repentance because they are a stiff-necked people. They're stubborn. They've rejected the Messiah. Stephen calls them to Repentance, And in that moment, we see Stephen experience really an unusual grace, doesn't he? I mean, he, he looks upward and he sees Jesus. Before the stones start flying, Stephen has this moment of unusual grace as he beholds this risen, ascended Christ. And he's narrating that to the crowd. We see that in verse number 56 of chapter 7. He's telling the crowd what he's seeing. I mean, and that within itself is courageous. And what's fascinating about that, as Pastor Tim was preaching that last Sunday morning, their response to Stephen is they stop their ears. I mean, that's, how it's, that's the language used. They, they don't want to hear anything else. You can almost like, like second-grade children, and they're plugging their ears so they don't have to hear what Stephen is saying. And you have to catch the tension of that text. 
Stephen is saying to them, that moment, there is Jesus, the Son of Man, alive and well, and at the right hand of the Father. The group he was speaking to, they had just killed that man. I mean, the, the rub had to be strong as Stephen stood there and spoke of that reality. Not only was Jesus alive, but he's at the right hand of the Father. And Stephen dies well. He dies a faithful man, honoring his Savior. And I was, as I was listening last week, there he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And I, listen, I'm sure Tim did this in his reading last week, and I did it in my reading this week. I don't know why Jesus was standing. The feel of the text is he's welcoming and receiving home a faithful servant. And how life-giving that must have been to Stephen. In that moment, to look up and behold the Savior standing at the right hand of the Father, how that must have emboldened him to continue in this moment when he knew likely he was about to die. Jesus received this faithful man into his presence. And back to chapter 8, verse number 2, there are these devout men now. We don't know who they are. Some suggest the church is already scattered in verse number 1. So these could have been just devout Jewish men of the community. They say that if it was the church, Luke would have said brothers, devout brothers, came and made lament over Stephen, buried him. Whatever the case, as we look into this particular text, there, there's a great lamentation poured out over Stephen in his life. Uh, this, this is happening probably for multiple reasons. One, they honored a godly man. They were honoring a faithful man, a man who finished his course well. He was unjustly murdered. And I think a part of this lament is just that. It's, it's almost defiant, if you will. They were publicly weeping and mourning over Stephen. Lamentation in the ancient days would have, would have included likely the beating of their chest. I mean, this was, this was a scene to behold, and it was playing out right on the streets of Jerusalem. And in some ways, it was a show of solidarity with Stephen. One commentator, Daryl Bach, in his commentary on Acts, notes that this kind of lamentation could take place 30 50, 70 days. They love this man. And at the end of Stephen, and this is all we get for Stephen, at the end of Stephen, the story concludes, this is a faithful man who loved and served a faithful Savior. But though the story of Stephen ends in verse 2 of Acts 8, the ripple effects of his life continue throughout history. And we're going to see that. Even, even in our text today, we're going to see the effects of Stephen and his life and what happens as a result of the sermon that he preached, that Tim preached last Sunday morning. So let's move, let's move forward back to verse number 1. This is Saul who's, who's going to introduce severe persecution up on the church. Verse 1, Saul standing there, 
Last week we saw this. He's standing that those who are accusing Stephen, they're laying their garments at Saul's feet. In verse number one, Luke comes back and says, Saul approved of his execution. Now, let me just make a, a brief comment here. This text is really introducing us. Last Sunday in this text is introducing us to who will be the primary figure for, the, for more or less the rest of Acts. A man by the name of Saul, who we will later know in the book of Acts by his Greek name, which is Paul. He is going to play the central role in the advancement of the church to the nations in the book of Acts. Saul was introduced, introduced to us last, in last week's narrative. I mean, it's, it's kind of a shocking moment in last week's narrative, right? They're, they're getting ready to stone Stephen. They take their garments off and they lay them down at Saul's feet. When he received those garments at his feet, most scholars suggest to us that it is, it is there we see that this young Saul is approving of the execution, what we see in verse number one, but that act of laying the garments at his feet that signify here that Paul not only approved of, excuse me, Saul not only approved of the execution, but that he was the instigator behind it. In other words, that, that action of laying the garments at his feet, yes, he approved of the execution, but this is the one who was the leader of the mob who's going to now take Stephen's life. And I think that's going to be proven in just a moment in our text. In Acts chapter 22, we learn that Paul, Saul, I'm going to confuse both of those names throughout this entire sermon, is from a Roman province called Cilicia. Cilicia is in modern-day kind of southeastern Turkey. Paul would be from a little town in Cilicia called Tarsus. But this, this comment in Acts 22 is interesting that he's from Cilicia because earlier in chapter 6, when there was a confrontation between Stephen and a number of the religious rulers and those within Jerusalem at that time, it included in verse number 9 a group from Cilicia, Paul's home region. And a lot of scholars connect that and say, hey, Paul's likely present in early chapter 6. He's the one leading the confrontation that would eventually lead to Stephen's death. Look down at the end of verse number one. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Luke's careful. We, we see this in a variety of places in the books of Acts. He's, he's very careful with his language. This is a great persecution. And I think what he's doing is just marking this out. This is unlike anything they'd experienced to this point. Jerusalem had reached a boiling point, and now it was spilling over. What's happening in this is more than just arrest and beatings. Stephen is dead. Stephen has been executed outside of Jerusalem. They drug him outside of Jerusalem, and they executed him. He's been murdered. And now the fill this text is, the, the, lid, of, the lid is off, if you will, on persecution. And, and everything's on the table, not just for the apostles, but for the church. The persecution in verse number one, it's, it's intense, it's sustained. And notice the result there at the end of verse number one. They were all scattered. Believers were scattered. They left Jerusalem. This persecution is so great that only the apostles are left in Jerusalem. The rest of the church, they begin to flee. So if we understand this text correctly, 
The wave of persecution is so great that thousands, you remember what we've been tracking through the book of Acts, how many were coming to faith in Jesus. If we understand this word all correctly, that means thousands of faithful Christians in Jerusalem were experiencing the wave of this persecution and they were fleeing to the countryside. It's easy just to pass over that verse and not sense the magnitude of this. I mean, they were, they were closing shop. They were closing homes. And they were leaving immediately because this persecution, in Luke's terminology, was so great. And this is kind of remarkable here in the book of Acts. Because up to this point, only the apostles had experienced persecution. And Peter and John primarily, and, and obviously now James, or excuse me, Stephen and others, James soon. But to this point, it's, it's been primarily just the apostles, and now the persecution, like a cancer, is beginning to spread throughout the streets of Jerusalem and into the homes of members of the church in Jerusalem. I mean, the church had experienced hardships. I don't, I don't want to belittle that. I mean, we've seen the poverty that wrecked the Jerusalem church, and we saw the response of the church, right? They sold houses, they sold lands. I mean, they sacrificed for the sake of the gospel, but now it's something a little different. It's physical persecution, and it's coming into the homes of the members of the church. I mean, in the mind of a believer in Jerusalem in this moment, if Stephen could be martyred like that, is anyone safe? And so what we see here in, in verse number two is they begin to scatter to the regions of, throughout the regions of Judea, which is just really the countryside surrounding Jerusalem. But then they move all the way up into Samaria. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Verse three, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So there's a change of strategy here. If you remember back in Acts chapter 5, you remember Gamaliel when he stood before the Sanhedrin and he said, hey, listen, we've seen this before. We've seen other leaders come along and movements come along and, and they at some point cease to exist. And what, what he was urging the Sanhedrin toward was, hey, the way to deal with this is not to persecute them or kill them. That is not the way to deal with this. And he comes to the end of that little, little section in Acts 5, and he says, listen, if this is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And you remember what happens. They, they release Peter and John at that point. I mean, they beat them, or the apostles, they beat them, but they release them. And it seems to be that they're taking heed to Gamaliel's advice. Listen, don't persecute them, just let it go. If it's of God, you can't overturn it anyway. If it's not of God, it will cease to exist. And now here in Acts chapter 8, there is a significant change of strategy. Saul is on the attack. And we're going to see this in a moment. He's on the attack because the chief priest unleashed him. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a significant change happening here in Acts and their view of the church. Back to verse number three, Saul's effort to eliminate Christianity from Jerusalem. It's intense, systematic. I mean, if you go back and look at verse number three, they're going house to house. They knew who the Christians were. They knew where they were gathering. 
Remember in Acts chapter 2 and Acts 5, the Christians were gathering in the temple. They, they were gathering in homes. They had no options. Saul targeted these homes in verse number 3. His efforts, they're forceful. I mean, they don't go in and request people to come to the prison or the jail. Saul is going in these homes, and there, there is a vengeful act taking place here. He's dragging out men and women from their homes. He is putting men and women, at the end of verse number 3, into prison. I mean, this is aggressive. And we should ask a question here. Why was Saul attacking the church with such vigor at this particular point? Well, there's multiple answers to that. The gospel that Stephen would just, just preached, that gospel had now penetrated all of Jerusalem. I mean, you remember Acts chapter 5? You have filled all of Jerusalem with your doctrine. That They are recognizing now this message of Jesus has, has infiltrated all of Jerusalem. They are seeing it with their eyes that thousands have come to Christ. And Saul here is the one who rises up in these religious leaders, and he is determined to stop it. Gamaliel's advice is out the window. Paul is now on the attack. And he's going to enter homes, and he's going to drag men and women our brothers and our sisters he's going to walk into their homes and he's going to drag them out and he's going to commit them to prison throughout paul's life he's going to remember this shameful aspect of his life you don't don't need to turn but let me let me read a few of those acts 22 this is what paul says saul and i said lord they themselves know that in one synagogue after another this is Saul talking. I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And with the blood, listen, here's, here's the ripple effects of a faithful man. And the blood of Stephen, your witness, as it was being shed, I myself was standing and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Acts 26, Paul again. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, and here it is, after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Paul had been unleashed by the chief priest, and he reflects back up on these shameful moments of his life. And it's not just in the book of Acts. Throughout his epistles, Paul's going to refer back to these days. In 1 Corinthians... He's going to say, I persecuted the church of God. In Philippians chapter 3, he's going to say, I was a persecutor of the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he's going to say, I was a persecutor and an insolent or an abusive opponent of the church of God. I mean, he recognized this part of his life. Galatians 1, he's going to reveal to us the motives of this persecution. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and then here it is, I tried to destroy it. When you see this in Acts chapter 8, and you see this great persecution that Luke notes for us here, you see Saul kind of encouraging or directing this entering into homes and dragging out men and women, committing them to prison. Behind all of that was Saul's primary intent. He was going to destroy the church of God which is fascinating. And Paul would come to recognize this. Here's Paul trying to destroy, and here's Jesus 
building his church. And what we're going to see in this text is he's going to use Paul and Paul's attempts to destroy the church to in turn advance the church. I mean, this is, this is Christ as he rules over Paul. Look over at Acts chapter 9. Turn, actually, turn in your Bibles to this one. Acts chapter 9, verse number 1. This is a couple of weeks down the road. This is right before Saul is converted. Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. I mean, it's, just, it's almost like it's just everything he's about, it's consumed him. This is what he does. He's breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and he asked for letters to be sent to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here it is. Paul's in Jerusalem. Persecution rises up in Jerusalem. The church scatters. What does Paul do? He's going to follow them. He's going to follow them. He, he, he's going to ask those who are now in Damascus if they belong to the way, if they are Christians, he wants to know so that he can come and get them, bond them, and bring them back to Jerusalem. I mean, it, it, this has consumed this man. He's going to destroy the church of God. And Paul would get on that road to Damascus with the intent of destroying the church. But we know what happens on that road, and we'll save that for a later narrative. And let me just maybe hit a little rabbit trail this morning, a little side note. Why do you think Paul so often, and I didn't hit all of them, rehearsed this sin that was a part of his life? He does it in Acts. He does it in a number of epistles. Why does Paul come back to this sin in his life over and over and over. Well, I don't think it was Paul's point to dwell in shame and guilt of his sin. I don't think that's what Paul was doing. I think Paul felt the weight of his actions. I mean, he loved the church. I think he felt the weight of his actions as he matured and, and grew as a disciple of Jesus. But I think every time, and maybe this helps us as readers, every time we see Paul reflecting upon this previous sin in his life, it's not to dwell in shame and guilt, but it's to glory in the grace that has been given to him in Christ. And he looks back and he sees it. But I think Paul looks back and he sees that, and what he's doing for us as readers is he's just marking the triumph of God's grace in his life that he has on that road to Damascus. All right, go back to verse number four, our third point here. Providence, persecution, and the mission of the gospel. Verse four, they were scattered. They went about preaching the word. Philip goes down to Samaria. He proclaims Christ there. Verse six, the crowds, they pay attention. What is being said by Philip? Philip's the next character that's kind of introduced. He's a part of that. Seven, back to Acts chapter six. Miracles. And wonders are attached to Philip's ministry. We see that in verse number seven. And the end result is verse number eight. There was much joy in that city. So just come back and see what's happening here. Under the providence of God, opposition in Jerusalem has now served to move the gospel into what was previously unreached places. 
Not only did it move the gospel into these cities like Samaria and others that we're going to see, but it moved the gospel successfully into these cities. Verse number six, they paid attention. They were listening. They were all ears, if you will, when Philip came among them and he was preaching. So the persecution that Saul kind of brought up on the church in Jerusalem that was designed to kind of snuff out the flame of Christianity has done nothing but kind of fan that flame. And now Christianity is a wildfire that's spreading throughout Judea, the countryside, and now into Samaria. What Paul thought would extinguish the flame expanded it. This text, as I mentioned, moves another of the seven individuals from Acts 6 into the limelight. It's Philip. Philip's going to play an important role as we move through these next few narratives. He, he's going to play an important role of the initial founding of the church outside of Jerusalem. He's going to take the gospel to Samaria. We're going to see that. We're going to look into that in just a moment. And he's going to take the gospel, verse 26 and following in chapter 8, he's going, to, he's going to take the gospel to other areas. As a matter of fact, Philip is likely the instrument that the Lord uses to take the gospel into northern Africa, which is just fascinating. All because of the persecution that rose up in Jerusalem. Years later, Paul and Philip are going to team up. Which again, it's just irony is so thick. Christ had conquered Paul's heart by the time we get to Acts 21. And he says, and Luke records on the next day, we, including Paul, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. And then listen to this little note in verse number nine of chapter 21. Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. I mean, the Spirit of God was working in this man and through his family in significant ways. Maybe none more so than what happens in this narrative that's in front of us this morning. The gospel penetrates the region of Samaria. Samaria was not its own country. It was just a region north of Jerusalem, north of Judea. It was under the control of the Roman government. It had a long history. It was the capital of the northern kingdom of the divided kingdom. When many of the Israelites, the Jews, were deported under uh, Assyrian authority, when many of them were deported, some stayed. And those who were left behind, they, they intermarried foreigners who settled in the land. The disdain would rise up in the hearts of Jews when they would return over their Sumerian brothers and sisters. Around 400 BC, the Samaritans would build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. They developed a kind of own unique, own unique religious tradition. Hostility between Jews and Samaritans was thick and severe, which why this is why this is so significant. The gospel's thriving in Jerusalem, and the Lord, under his providential hand, ordains and permits Saul to bring about persecution upon the church that then spreads the gospel into Samaria and other cities. I mean, the gospel had saturated Jerusalem. 
And now Acts chapter 1, this is a significant part of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse number 8, is going to take its next step. You remember that verse? The Holy Spirit, when he comes up on you, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And then he says, in all Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And how did God do that? Well, he did that through bringing persecution up on the church. And they begin to spread outside of the walls of Jerusalem into the countries surrounding this particular city and ultimately into Samaria. When we get to Acts chapter 11, Luke is going to directly tie the spread of the gospel to places like Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And Antioch is a significant city in the book of Acts. It's a prominent, influential, large city that is going to become a missions-sending church. But in Acts chapter 11, Luke is going to take all of those cities and the spread of the gospel into those cities, and he's going to bring it right back to this moment when he says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled into these cities. And what did they do? They preached the gospel. That's hard for us to swallow, right? That's a pill. Here's the Christ, the risen, supreme, authoritative Christ. He's building his church, and he uses, in this, providentially, he uses the persecution of the church to begin these ripple effects that will spread throughout the countryside and into Samaria, and ultimately in men like Paul throughout to the ends of the earth. Quick summary statement just for us to affirm together as a church. When I read Acts 6 and Acts 7 and then here in Acts 8 and later narratives, I want us as a church to be reminded that Christ is building his church and he does as he wills. I have read biographies of men and women who have taken the gospel to difficult places and they have expended their lives and many of them have lost their lives. I have been with pastors in, in a little island on the spice, spice Islands of Indonesia and talked with pastors who had suffered immense physical harm because they were preaching the gospel. And yet in those men, I saw such a resolve in their eyes, in their hearts. They knew that Christ was building his church, and they knew that Christ does as he wills. And in light of that, they were called as faithful servants to be content and to be faithful as Christ does his work. And Randolph Street, as we read through Acts 6 and Acts 7 and these beginning portions of Acts chapter 8, let us, let us take heed to that similar theme that's rising up in our hearts. Christ builds his church, and we honor that, and we see that, and we believe that, and we, we give honor and praise to God for that reality. Christ is building his church, and he does so as he wills. And our call is to be content 
and to be faithful in the midst of this work. My prayer for Randolph Street as we go through the book of Acts is that over and over and over, that resolve would rise up in our hearts as we face difficulties, as we face tribulations and sufferings, we would trust our great God and we would be faithful men and women at the work of the gospel that he has called us to. Amen? Let's turn our attention now to these tables. I'm going to ask our elders to come, our deacons to prepare our moment to step back and reflect, to commune, to honor our Savior for his redemptive work for us and for our salvation. In a moment, we're going to ask you to come. If you're a believer in Christ, you don't have to be a member of this local church, but if you're a believer in Christ, your hope is Christ and Christ alone, we're going to ask you to come. And as you come, you're going to hear our elders. They're going to serve you bread and cup, and you're going to hear them say to you, this is, this is his body, this is his blood. And as they do that, let that call your own heart into communion with your Savior. As you remember his death and you feast upon the hope that he has granted you through the gospel. May God strengthen his people here this morning as we partake of these elements together. Pray with me, if you would. Well, Father, this is a holy moment for us as a church. As we will come to these tables and we will be reminded that our hope is Christ and Christ alone. Lord, I would pray for those who will now receive that their hearts will be strengthened with grace. As they come and partake, they know they come not based on their own merit, but upon the merit of Christ and Christ alone. Let their souls be nourished with gospel truth, that Christ died for their sins. Oh Lord, let that, let that truth be planted deeply in our hearts anew as we walk to these tables. Let us consider, Father, this morning the sufferings of our Savior. As we break that bread, we are reminded that his body was broken for us, that his blood in this cup, his blood was shed for us. Let us remember the sufferings of our Savior. And Lord, I would pray for every person in this room as we observe this moment that what rises up in our hearts is our hope is Christ and Christ alone. If there are unbelievers gathered here with us this, this afternoon, this morning, Father, I would pray that as they sit and they observe, they listen, watch others partake, that their own hearts would be drawn to the gospel, drawn to Christ, that maybe even today through faith they would have their sins forgiven and receive eternal life. So, Father, bless your people now as we partake of these holy elements for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Deacons, you can begin dismissing.
couldn't help but think as Jason was preaching this morning and studying through the book of Acts and seeing how often they partook of the table of the tremendous significance it must have had for those first century believers scattered yet coming together in someone's home or coming together partaking of this table Jason alluded to it in his prayer speaking to us in the application as we come can you imagine in the midst of suffering, in the midst of being scattered, in the midst of persecution, to come to this table and to see our Lord who has suffered on our behalf, to recognize that there is a purpose in suffering, to recognize there is victory in suffering. Every time we come to the table, there's a message, there's a sermon, there's a truth. Oh, might we value those things so very deeply. The Apostle Paul would say, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me this truth has been passed down from generation to generation for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes our Father, our hearts are always deeply moved as we come to the table. Today we come in the light of suffering. We come in the light of persecution. We come in light of the words of the Apostle Paul that through much tribulation we enter into the kingdom. We recognize its design. We recognize that in your providence, you are building your church. We recognize that in tribulation, there is also tremendous triumph of the gospel. And Father, we rejoice in you. We give praise. We sing as Sean and Amelia cried out in their song that you are a great God and greatly to be praised. Amen. Please stand and sing.
Marcy, thank you for coming and being with us, your husband as well. Thank you for sharing. Please spend some time speaking with her so that the 20 schemes might fall on your heart and you embrace it in praying for them. It's been a good day. We end with the words of our Lord. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Praise God.